If I tell you the name Ufkir, how do you feel? Indifferent? I wouldn't blame you for that. It is a long story that's gathering dust on the shelves of Moroccan history's archives, for sure. A dark story, to say the least. Or maybe you just missed a heartbeat and liking this podcast episode or this video scares you a little bit. Well, let me reassure you, my friend. You can double tap or like or follow freely on this podcast or video, whatever format you're watching, because I ain't about to spill nothing but facts. I spent a lot of time digging that file, and experience has shown me that I can trust my diligence, my ability to background search, my desire to portray history in the most neutral light possible, even though history is not neutral. And things are going to be said in this podcast that could change your perspective on things. I really want to put that disclaimer out before we go any further. But I hope you know that you can trust me with the information I provide you with as I trust my intentions and my good faith in my background searching process. So you won't get in trouble, you can trust me. You guessed it, today I'm about to have you go through the Ufqir file. Now put your seatbelt on and let's get into it. The Ufqir family is known for its complex and dramatic history, filled with political intrigue, betrayal, and tragedy. The central figure in this saga is General Mohamed Ufqir, a key military figure in Morocco during the mid-20th century. Let's start with him. Like I said, our story begins with Mohamed Ufqir. It unfolds in the remote village of Ain Shair, nestled in the outskirts of Boudhnib in the beautiful region of Tafilalt. Mohamed Ufqir was born on May 14, 1920, in a large Amazigh family of 16 siblings. Now, an important aspect of Ufqir's childhood is his father's function. And I really want us to take a closer look on that for a second. I'm going to explain to you why right after. The army runs in the Ufqir bloodline. The head of the household was a renowned Qaid in the region, like there were many back in the day. It was kind of how the local administration used to work in Morocco. But the Ufqir father wasn't just any Qaid. In 1910, as France was gearing up to establish the protectorate over Morocco, his father got appointed to the function by the Marshal Hubert Lyoté himself. Now, if you're familiar with Moroccan history, you know who this guy is. If you're not, I got you. The Treaty of Fès handing over Morocco to the French administration by introducing the French and Spanish protectorates over the country would be signed two years later. In the meantime, Lyoté still wasn't quite the first resident general of Morocco we mostly know him for. He attracted Oufqir on the eve of the protectorate to solidify his control over the region. Now worry you shall not, I'm about to make an entire separate episode on this guy because men oh men are there many things to say. Oufqir's father was an easy target to say the least. Big family to take care of, a strong sense of duty given his military background that needed a prestigious authority to latch on. So he became a strategic pun for the French troops in the region, a prominent local figure relied upon by the colonial authorities. Now, thanks to his father's recommendation as the Qaid of Boudhenib, with the pressure support of France, the Oufqir family were amongst the few Moroccans who were able to tailor themselves a very comfortable position during the occupation, serving the protectorate with their lives, quite literally. Now, I already know what you're thinking. Why tell you about Oufqir's father when it is the son we're trying to focus on? Girl, leave the poor man alone. Well, by now, you already know I like to dig deep, which really wasn't 
easy to do in Oufkhir's case, given it didn't take me very long before coming across the veil of secrecy surrounding his life story. But fortunately, I was able to gather a solid stack of information to paint a picture of his life before he pled allegiance to the monarchy and the French army, actually. Studying Oufkhir felt like solving a cryptic puzzle, I ain't gonna lie, with an abnormal amount of missing pieces. His childhood was by far the emptiest field I've ever had to walk on in this podcast. But I find that snooping into people's backgrounds, studying the seed of the individual, so to speak, I find that it helps us understand better the people they end up becoming, the specimen they find themselves growing into, the responsible adults they turn out to be. Now, we're not about to go too deep into psychological territory here, as that really isn't my qualification, but in Mohamed Oufkhir's case, the conclusions are very easy to make. His father had a unique position in his life, serving as a steadfast role model, a reflection of the man he envisioned himself stepping into. He shaped his very first definition of success, of fulfillment, of what making it in life means, or in this case, in Morocco, under the protectorates. Now, from the early years of his childhood, he lived a fast-paced life in a family boasting with an impressive count of 16 kids. And I truly don't think I'm overstepping or interpreting if I point out the idea that this young boy was probably feeling quite like a small boat navigating in turbulent waters between his many brothers and sisters and the cadence of boots, the echoes of military commands, the conversations he probably overheard his father having with highly placed members of the colonial administration that would come visit. This is all to say that he only knew one thing, which is the environment of politics and the military. Enlisting in the armed forces became a natural progression where he embraced the uniform and the ethos that shaped his childhood. His father's political career instilled in him not only a profound sense of duty towards the French colonial powers, but also a relentless pursuit of excellence that is pretty much a characteristic of people working and dedicating their lives to the military. Or at least that's what they try to do. And by excellence, I mean being highly obedient and efficient. So as he grew, yeah, so did his desire to follow his father's footsteps. And by footsteps, I mean his devotion to France. Freshly out of the Boudhenib school, Oufkhir um, joins the Tariq ibn Ziyad preparatory school of Azro in the province of Ifran, a renowned and very popular institution at the time. Now, let's take this one by the horns for a second. The Tariq ibn Ziyad school is the first secondary school to have ever been constructed in an Amazigh region. It was built and ran by the French colonial authorities in the early stages of the protectorates over Morocco. But, as you can imagine, the goal wasn't all humanistic. In fact, it was nothing of that kind. When setting up the institution, the French administration had big plans in mind. They wanted to shape new Moroccan minds, harvest them at the source, so to speak, take them from a very young age and train them to become devoted executors of colonial policies. During the occupation, the county of Azro, which we now know as the unofficial capital of Atlas al-Mutawassit, so the central atlas, became a cash cow, so to speak, for the French colonial authorities, producing a milk of Moroccan sympathizers, if you allow me the picture. The school was grooming a new new generation of Moroccans from Amazigh descent, trying to turn them, and actually succeeding, at turning them into devoted 
agents of the administrations, puppets that could swallow and digest the pill of the infamous Berber Dahir. Now, I'll make an entire separate episode covering the making of that document, its dispositions and implications for different parts of the country, the reactions surrounding it, the dramatic and long consequences it's had on Moroccan society. But all you need to know for now is that it was a legal document crafted by the French and most specifically French jurists and counting as one of their numerous terribly clumsy attempts to meddle in Moroccan matters. That document was a factor of division within the Moroccan body, literally cutting it in half by changing the entire legal system in parts of the country where Emezir languages were primarily spoken and leaving out the urban parts of Morocco that kept answering to the pre-French invasion legal system. In class, the content was carefully curated in the Tariq ibn Ziyad school. Education, by its ability to mold perspectives, control historical narratives, and influence values, was weaponized, like it almost always is, to be fair. But in this particular case, it was precisely designed to mold Amazigh collective consciousness into serving France's colonial agenda for its own political gain. A political gain that really wasn't about, you know, making Morocco the new Algeria, but it was a very strange and rather unsettling, if you want my opinion, uh, plan and goal that France and the European colonies in general had for Morocco. I'll be covering that in other episodes in details, providing you with exclusive documents from the French administration back in the day. It truly is, like I said, unsettling and quite interesting. It's not exactly the picture we imagine of the protectorates. I can't wait to share that with you, so stay tuned for the next episodes. And that is the end. No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. Are you still with me? I hope you are. If yes, let's continue. Now, the reason I put such an emphasis on researching the environment Oufkir was brought up in alongside a certain political allied to be so to speak this reason is purely personal and i really wanted to share it with you because i truly have always wondered what is it that made some moroccan citizens so willing to seek the french administration's great favors back in the day and what is it that kept them so attached to its legacy even years after we achieved our independence and you can spend days thinking about it making all sorts of assumptions but to reduce the distance between your assumptions and the reality so to speak even though there isn't like one reality we all know that history is like multifaceted i feel like you really need to have a large perspective on that episode of our history there's something to be said about this heritage and i'll have to make an entire separate episode about it which even just thinking about it i just know it's gonna be like a headache but you know i love a good challenge in the meantime bear with me i'm going to provide you with as much insight as i can with what i have now let's get back to oufkir for a second actually for the rest of the episode Mohammed oufkir decided to enlist in the french army at the age of 21 fighting shoulder to shoulder with france during world war ii with the ally forces the french military forces noticed him in the amorphous crowd so to speak of soldiers on the battlefield as he showed out standing military skills and i found these comments that were made by the french you know administration and the french troops because they were holding a file i'm going to tell you a little bit more about it later on but they used to hold files 
about each Moroccan officer that was enrolled in the army. And it is an understatement to say how much he was showered with compliments by the French. Like I said, because he was such a good soldier, right? Oufkir served the French with his life. He came face to face with the Nazis on numerous occasions and following the war, he continued his service in the French army in the first Indochina war that raged between 1947 to 1949 in the colony's struggle for independence. Now, over the course of the bloody conflict, Oufkir attained the rank of captain, earning various military honors including the French Legion of Honor and the infamous Croix de Guerre, which are very prestigious military distinctions, amongst other honors, which I'm not going to mention because they're not really relevant. Now, these experiences on the battlefield, fighting shoulder to shoulder with the French, shaped Oufkir's character, sure, his values, everything he believed in, it solidified his bond to the French administration, but most importantly, these experiences allowed him to first start building a serious military and political portfolio. A portfolio that was going to be extremely useful to him in his rise in ranks. Now, the newly appointed captain had a professional life that was crowned with accomplishment. But for his life to be considered sorted, at least socially, there was still one lost missing piece to the puzzle of his success. A family. He married once in his lifetime, and he married young, like it was common practice to do back then. Don't act surprised or shocked. Fatima Oufkir, his wife, was 16 when they tied the knot. The couple had a total of six kids, mashallah, six battles to lead for Fatima, while her husband was leading many other of a different kind. His only true life partner was the Hassantani administration, which we're gonna talk about a little later. <laughs> he would only leave the dance floor of politics on rare occasions to go back to his life as a family man. Like most of the Moroccan political elite at the time, frankly, his attention was absorbed by intrigues of power, by getting his hands dirty in building Morocco back up or down, depending on your perspective. Now, if you know anything about the Oufkir file, you know his family family, unfortunately, ended up paying for that drive. Now, back to the files I told you we found about Oufkir serving in the French army. Remember the comments the French troops would make about his military skills or whatever? Decades later, after his death, his son, Raouf Oufkir, revealed a military file he found not in his father's cabinet, as the man himself was never aware of that document existing, but he found it when he tried to trace down his father's steps, an undertaking that led him to consult public archives. That is where he found a record the French forces had on Mohamed Oufkir back in 1944, like a journal they kept, like I said, over the time he served as a young officer in the French army, and where they would comment on his behavior, his character, his achievements, etc. Now, that was common knowledge in Morocco, obviously, especially when he served as Hassan Tani's right-hand men. But Oufkir was a great officer. Military speaking, he was great. The French complimented his composure on the battlefield, his obedience, and his leadership. Despite being in the good favors of the French colonial authorities, in his 20s, Oufkir remained relatively insignificant in the political scene. He was an officer, a body without a face, so to speak, drowning in the amorphous mass of Moroccans who were utilized by the protectorate administration. Now, let's do the dance of all the roles he's had in the army. In 1950, he transitioned from the rank of captain to intelligence work as an aide-de-camp to General Raymond Duval. Now, why is that important? 
Everything is important, you already know that by now, at least to me. But General Raymond Duval was the supreme commander of troops in Tunisia and Morocco. If you've heard anything of the infamous insurrection of Stif in Tunisia, you already know where I'm going with this. Indeed, Raymond Duval was the lead of that tragic operation that ended up in a massacre that quelled and crushed the rebellion against the French colonial forces on Tunisian soil. Let's call it for what it was, like I said, a massacre. Five years later, he enjoyed Ufqir's assistance, and Ufqir enjoyed his guidance. With that job, he got the opportunity to oversee some operations in Morocco, quelling burgeons of early nationalist slash independentist revolts, etc. Five years later, and that's when it gets interesting, he became a member of the military staff to Pierre Boyer de la Tour. And why am I bothering you with this? Who's this guy? Well, there's no way I wasn't about to mention him. He was Lyotis successor to the prestigious position of resident general in Morocco. And I mentioned this because working for this guy allowed Mohamed Oufqir to participate in an operation that literally paved the way for his political rise to power to be or to come, allowing him to participate in negotiations for the departure of Sultan Sidi Mohamed bin Arafah and allow the return of Sultan Mohamed bin Yusuf. Now, I'll have to make again an entire separate episode on this particular period of Morocco's history and on these two guys separately, like so many, so many, so many layers to uncover together. But all you need to know is that Sultan Mohammed bin Yusuf was exiled by the French at one point, who decided to place someone that was going to be more lenient or more like a puppet to them. Essentially a yes man that wasn't gonna oppose too much resistance to colonial policies, etc. Which Sultan Mohammed bin Arafah was very much a yes man, so that came in handy. Then came some negotiations, which again, Oufqir took part of. And to get back at him so I don't go too far here, those negotiations, you need to understand, they were a key moment in his military career. He got in the favors of the Sultan Mohammed Khamis, or soon to be Sultan Mohammed Khamis, by contributing to making sure he came back from the exile France had sent him on. The least we can say is that after the independence, his contribution wasn't forgotten. Now I need to make a quick disclaimer here. I think I said uh, Sultan Mohammed Khamis or soon to be Sultan Mohammed Khamis. Now he was already a Sultan at that time. The only, um, I guess, nuance or difference is that he wasn't a king yet. In fact, at that point in Moroccan history, there had never been we would call them sultan or caliphs, but that's all. We'll go over this in much like further detail in another separate episode, but Sultan Mohammed bin Yusuf became a king in 1957, so one year after the independence, under the title King Mohammed Khams. That's for the little disclaimer. Back to Oufqir. He developed a sense of loyalty towards the crown um, a little bit before and especially after the departure of the French administration, that allowed him to survive the rise of nationalism, an attachment many argue initially came from a sincere place. Now we'll go over the reality of that attachment and of that loyalty towards the throne, but not necessarily towards the person that is sitting on it. We'll see that in much further detail after. The precision and the nuance is extremely important because that's literally what's going to trigger and explain the actions he ended up taking against the monarchy and against especially King Hassan So following his triumphant return on November 16, 1955, the Sultan Mohammed bin Yusuf ascended to the throne on August 14, 1957. So two years later, in between which France and Spain agreed to granting Morocco its independence, 
independence on March and April 1956. Ufker's math was mathing indeed. He played his cards right and was rewarded for it. Supporting the Sultan allowed him to be promoted to lieutenant-colonel, a highly ranked position that only further aroused Ufker's political ambition. He came up with a clear objective to establish the royal armed forces and diminish the influence of the Moroccan National Liberation Army, as well as that of the Istiqlal Party. In other terms, he wanted to squash the strong nationalist front that some eminent political figures were forming at the time. Figures that had immensely contributed to the struggle for independence, at least on the ideological field, but a big threat to the monarchy nonetheless, given their triggering set of claims and political agenda. In his wildest dreams, Ufqir wanted to wipe them out. Truth be told, he despised them. One of the FAR's most major operations he oversaw entirely was the crushing of violent uprisings in northern Morocco between November 1958 and January 1959, as a section of Moroccans that were living there were sold onto the idea of becoming independent, which had been instilled and carried on by Abdelkrim Khattabi, and that were still very intense and vivid at that time, especially now that the Spanish had left and they weren't an issue anymore. But to the central power, to the monarchy, that simply was not an option. It was unimaginable. As a result of the role he played in suppressing the rebellion, which he did, he literally quashed it, Ufqir was appointed director of security in May 1960, allowing him to further climb the ladder. The man was unstoppable by that point, hitting milestone after milestone without questioning his positions much. Like I said, he was a military man. Not to put everyone in the same box, but that's usually the mindset. Your job as a military man is to follow orders. Now that came in handy that Ufqir was actually pretty convinced by the monarchy's mindset, at least at that point in time, and the orientation of national politics, still under King Mohammed Khams' rule. By the way, I realized that some people that are listening to me do not speak Arabic, so Muhammad Khams is essentially like translation for Muhammad V, father of Hassan Tani, and when I say Hassan Tani, it's Hassan II in name. And today you have Muhammad VI, etc. etc. So Ufqir did as he was asked, and as he always believed was true, that allowing rebellions to strike would have been an obstacle to achieving political stability and national unity which were indeed the two major challenges Morocco had to face at the time if we want to be truthful with ourselves. That is part of the reason why Ufqir and the rest of the administration had an issue with the nationalists. Considering he's always been front row in the major events that shaked the country, when he first came across this group of individuals that read too much and fought too little with their hands, individuals he never saw on the battlefield anywhere, and that popped with their big degrees and strong opinions, opinions they wore on their sleeve, opinions that were very much influenced by Western ideological trends, that's a fact, like communism, etc. He saw them as a bunch of detached stargazers that dreamt of European ideals from their couch and that knew nothing of the struggles that were awaiting Morocco and its internal dynamics. And he thought them to be elements of disturbance and obstacles to reaching political stability. Hence, Ufqir and the rest of the administration weren't really listening to the claims these people had. In that sense, he shared the views of King Mohammed Khams' first son and next on the line of succession, the infamous Hassan, who would later become Hassan Tani, the most distinguished leader in Moroccan modern history, and who Ufqir would end up serving with his life till death. 
drifted them apart. Now I'll let you digest all these dates and all these facts and all this information. Obviously you need to know that this is just the beginning of Ufqar's story as the biggest part is yet to come under King Hasantani's administration and rule as well as the national betrayal he ended up committing and the tragedy he ended up facing with his family. Thank you so much for making it this far in the episode. Do not hesitate if you've liked it to leave me a review on Spotify or on any platform you're listening to be fair. Share it around with your friends, with your family. Join me on Instagram. I've been posting real short excerpts of the podcast and exclusive content as well. I also have a TikTok where I do the same thing and I think that's pretty much it. Until next time, I will see you next time. <laughs> or hear you. Or you'll be listening to me. Whatever. See you next time. Thank you so much for the support I've been getting. It's been incredible. Um, I love getting your messages. Do not hesitate. Again, last disclaimer, I promise, and then I'm gone. Do not hesitate to send me messages. Tell me what you've been thinking. Like your opinions, maybe. I'm curious to hear them. Great things are to come for this podcast. I cannot wait to share them with you. And until next time, stay enlightened and stay curious. Salam. <laughs>